And a pair of LDS missionaries came to my door. I answered and uh, loved talking to the missionaries. We spent a significant amount of time talking together. They came back on a number of occasions. But I'll never forget the first interaction with this particular pair, at least some of the parts of it that stand out specifically in my mind. One of the very first things that these uh, young missionaries asked me was, have you read the Book of Mormon? My answer was yes, I've read the whole Book of Mormon, all the, all the way through, footnotes and everything, you know. They said, well, what did you think about it? And I gave them the answer that I typically give a Mormon who asks me that question. I say, you know, it's not very Mormon. There's not much in there that's uniquely LDS teaching. Some of the most notable and obvious Mormon doctrines are totally absent from the Book of Mormon. They're not really in there at all. And I said, and that actually leads me to a question I'd ask you. I said, what is different or unique or new that I will learn about God from reading the Book of Mormon that I would not already gain from reading the Bible? And the answer they gave was, well, nothing new. It's all going to be the same. It agrees. Knowing a little bit of Mormon doctrine already at that time, I was like, I don't know if that's entirely true. But the statement was, there's nothing new. And so my answer was, well, then why do we need it? Why do we need it if there's nothing new in it? And their answer was, it proves that the founder of our religion, Joseph Smith, was a true prophet. That's the use of the Book of Mormon. And I said, well, hold on. If it, if it contains, as you say, nothing new, but the same old repeated truths you can find in the Bible, how does that prove he's a prophet? And the answer they gave to that is, well, it does contain stories of the Hebrew people in America. And those stories are not in the Bible. Those are new. And so I said, well, how do you know the stories are true? And they said, because it was given to us by a true prophet. I said, how do you know he's a true prophet? They said, because he gave us these prophecies. You might be following the circle as it's completed itself a couple of loops at this point. You see, they'd say the Book of Mormon proves Joseph's a true prophet. How do you know he's a true prophet? Because he gave us the Book of Mormon. That's the way their reasoning went. Now, I want to be really fair to our Latter-day Saint neighbors, I know that not all of our LDS neighbors would argue with that same line of reasoning as these young missionaries did at that moment. I know that. But that story, that interaction to me highlights a principle that we all know to be true. It's why there was a little bit of a murmur and a chuckle in here when I said parts of it. The principle is this. The weightier the claim, the more proof is needed to validate it. The weightier the claim, the more proof is needed to validate it. The claims of Mormonism, as with any religion, are substantial. In other words, if true, that would change everything about your beliefs, about why you exist, what every minute should be devoted to, your purpose in life, and of course, your eternity, if those claims were true. That's how weighty, that's how significant the claims are. Claims that significant, warrant significant evidence. 
significant evidence. The higher the claim, the higher the need for evidence. Jesus deals with this very same principle in the text that we're going to be covering today. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to John chapter 5. We're back in John for a couple of weeks, and then we have a Christmas sermon series that we'll be covering uh, shortly thereafter uh, to point you to Christmas and the good news of Jesus coming. We've been in the book of John for months now. It's been over a year we've been in John, taking short breaks into other sermon series and then back. And here we are in John chapter 5, and he's going to deal with the same principle I just brought up. I want to go ahead and read through the text we're covering today, which is verses 30 through 36 of John 5. I'll pray, and then we'll go back through the text, unpacking a bit of it at a time, and just a few points of application for you, okay? Let's go ahead and pray. Let's go ahead and read and then pray. If you have your Bibles, John 5, verses 30 through 36. This is Jesus speaking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Let's pray. Father, as we read this word This morning, uh, I feel as though I have the weighty task on my shoulders of explaining sometimes even very challenging texts. Uh, Hearing Jesus say something, and then me as a mere mortal, just a man, a sinful human, trying to explain what it is that Jesus, the creator of the universe, said is a weighty endeavor. And so, Lord, I, I appeal to you. I humble myself before you, ask for help as I seek to uh, understand the scriptures and share them with my brothers and sisters here and, and even any uh, unbelievers who, who might hear of this someday with us or in a recording. Lord, use your word to shape and form our thoughts, our beliefs, to save our immortal souls. And Lord, uh, start doing that work in this text this morning, we ask in Jesus' good name, amen. Now, it's been a bit of time since we've been in the book of John, so I just want to give you the quick background and the setting for this conversation. The setting is Jerusalem. Jesus had just been at the pool of Bethesda where people were gathering, hoping to be healed from a whole bunch of sicknesses that they may have had. The time was uh, the the time of a holy feast, some Jewish festival. We weren't given the specific one in this text. And there's a man present who has been lame for 38 years. Jesus heals this man supernaturally and then says to him, take up your mat and walk. So the man rolls up his mat, begins walking away, and some Jewish leaders see it. And these leaders know that it's not lawful for a man to walk carrying his stuff on the Sabbath. This all took place on a Sabbath. It was very significant. And so this led to them being quite frustrated with this guy. In fact, they were indignant. First, with the fact that this man would dare break the Sabbath by carrying a mat. Second, when they learned that Jesus told him to carry it, they were more upset with Jesus. 
Third, they learned that not only did Jesus tell this man to carry the mat, and then he went and did it, but Jesus performed a healing on the Sabbath, which was again another breaking of the law as they saw it. And as Jesus told them his justification for why it was okay for him to do it, that's when he really stirred their ire. I want to show you what he said lastly and most significantly. Jesus called God his Father. And this stoked their indignation into a white-hot, murderous fury. John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So this went from them having to deal with a Sabbath-breaking violation to a blasphemy, as they saw it. What follows is Jesus' rebuttal to their concern. In fact, in our text today, Jesus is leveling an indictment against these Jews for rejecting not merely his own testimony, that he called himself the Son, but that they were rejecting a score of witnesses that were testifying on Jesus' behalf. Let's go ahead and look at these verses together, starting in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says right here, I can do nothing on my own. What's he saying? He's not saying that it's an incapacity of his. He's not saying that the Father desires one thing, and he desires something else, but the Father's bigger and always gets his own way. He's not talking about any contrarian views. He means here that to operate contrary to the Father is not in his nature. Would not be possible for him to operate contrary to the Father. He could not heal this lame man unless the Father were in agreement with him. In fact, he said this already earlier in the discourse. His first opening line of this discourse, verse Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So as the perfect Son of the Father, Jesus always acts in complete accord with the Father in word and in deed. Never in violation of that relationship. So who healed the lame man? There's a good question to answer if you're trying to get to the bottom of what he's saying. Who healed that lame man? Jesus or his father? And the answer is yes. Right? Why? I can do nothing on my own. The healing of this man was not me on my own. And so, in other words, he's saying, if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God. Because we always agree. But look at the second sentence in the same verse. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's a a weighty claim. That is a weighty claim. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. That same word for just is righteous. Think about what he's saying there. If I judge something, my judgment is correct. I never get it wrong. Earlier, Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He's still on that theme. That's where this is following from. 
He even explained that it is he who in the end will judge all mankind in the final judgment, the resurrection of the just and the unjust alike. He talks about a couple of verses before this. In fact, later in this discourse, Jesus will pronounce a judgment, a judgment on these Jewish leaders. He'll say, you do not have God's word abiding in you. He will say, you do not have the love of the Father in you. He's saying this to Jews, the most religious leaders of all the peoples, the ones who knew the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures more than anybody, the one who all the people around would have said, well, those are obviously the ones who are closest to God. He's going to level a judgment against them. And here he's saying, my judgment is just, incontrovertible, undebatable. If he says it, it is true. It is righteous. It is just. His judgments are always right. But I want you to notice here with me, why is it here that he says his judgment is just? What is the basis for the purity of his judgment? Well, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The nature of true justice is that it must be in accord with God. True justice always agrees with God. In fact, if a judgment does not agree with God, it is definitionally unjust. It's unrighteous. A judgment of any kind, legal or just a moral judgment one person might make about another's actions, is only just insofar as it agrees with the will of God. It cannot be influenced by anything that doesn't agree with Him, including selfish motives, which, of course, we all have. True justice, justice must transcend the subjective will of people. You know, you can see this on display in our world right now. The secularist or the materialist worldview, that's kind of the atheistic, the worldview that rejects God, rejects any supernatural, can never, ever, ever attain justice. It cannot account for it, and it certainly cannot produce it. It doesn't even believe in the basis of justice, right and wrong. Only by God's common grace can a non-believer stumble upon justice. Only by borrowing from our Christian worldview can they get it. Atheists enjoy the benefits of a worldview that is grounded in a belief in God while ignorantly rejecting the very God upon which the foundation of justice rests. Justice is an important word in our day. It's thrown around, it's redefined. It's something that I think Christians need to rally around and rightly define. Justice is that which agrees with God. That's it. That's the summary. Justice operates irrespective of the vote of the many. It does not operate under consensus. In other words, the entire world can shout one thing and declare it to be true, but if it does not agree with God, it's a lie. Let God be true, though every man a liar. This is the way that that would work. Justice is one of the most fundamental and essential elements of a functional society. 
Justice is one of the most fundamental and essential elements of a functioning society. In fact, I'm really fascinated by this study in the Bible. If you look back at the book of Exodus, where God was bringing his people out of Egypt, they'd been enslaved, they were brought through the Red Sea after numerous ten miracles, mighty works and wonders that God did in the midst of Israel and Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness, he provides food and water supernaturally for them. He provides victory over the Amalekites, the enemies who try to destroy them while they're the most vulnerable. He He solves all of that. He brings them to Mount Sinai. They are getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments. So they've not yet gotten the Ten Commandments. They've not yet gotten the law of God, the rest of Exodus, uh, the rest of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. None of those have yet been delivered to the people. The law has not been given. And what does God give them first? Judges. Judges are given even before the law. Some of you might remember the story of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who comes and says, hey, he sees, he sees Moses sitting there all day long hearing court cases and trying to settle disputes between people. And he goes, this isn't good, Moses. You need, to, you need to delegate some of this authority out because justice must be dealt with and you need judges to do that. And there needs to be more than just you. I want to show you what it says in Exodus 18, 21. This was, this was the list the qualifications for those judges. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. And here's the qualifications. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. They don't even have to be able to read. That's the starting point. I assume they had to read. The starting point. Able men who what? Do it again. Fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. That's what they need about them. Deuteronomy 16. This is years later when uh, these uh, particular instructions are finally put in the code. They're written down. Like, make sure this is true. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see how foundational justice is. And you see how even back then he says, listen, if the guys that you appoint to be judges will take a bribe, they cannot justly rule. Why? Because they will be seeking their own will rather than the will of the Father. If selfish motives rule the courts, an entire society will inevitably come crashing down. This is why our justice system in America has gotten so grotesquely corrupted. Because people have, in past generations, foolishly believed that justice could be obtained apart from God. You know that there is power in earthly courts, don't you? Enormous power in earthly courts. And so we should not be at all surprised that those who crave power and influence will be drawn to that power like flies to garbage. Power-hungry people long 
to wield the extraordinary power of justice systems. That's why this is so, in, so incredibly important. That Jesus is not trying to, even here as God-man, divine man, he's making it clear he is in perfect accord with the will of the Father. You know, we tell this Bible stories to our kids. We, we love celebrating the nativity scene and explaining how the king of the universe came to the earth as a little baby in a manger, in a stable, not surrounded by luxury and opulence. But he came in very meager conditions. And how significant that was, that he came humble. It's evidence literally at his birth he is not seeking his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Power-hungry people long to wield the extraordinary power of justice systems. And this is biblical. This is everywhere. This has been this way for millennium. Nebuchadnezzar, back in Babylon, to the pharaohs, to the Caesars, and tons of rulers in between. What did they demand? Worship me. And then they wielded the power of the courts so that if the people did not give them what they wanted... That was a crime punishable usually by torturous death, fiery furnace, crucifixion. The most horrendous things that men could devise. How dare you not obey me? And that only worked because they controlled the courts. When you entrust a justice system into the hands of egotistical narcissists, everything crumbles. So what's the solution to that? Seek the will of God first. All true justice seeks the will of God and not men. Certainly not the self. Galatians 1.10, Paul even writes, regarding a doctrinal dispute that was impacting the church and the, the Galatian churches, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He shows us the incompatibility with trying to please anything other than God instead of God. If anything gets in the way of seeking God's will first, whether it be a person's own selfish desires or the desire to please others, justice will most certainly be compromised. So if the world does not seek the Lord, and Christians do seek the Lord, what should we expect about our respective views of justice? They will not agree. They will not agree. This is why it's nearly impossible to imagine giant masses, throngs of godless people mixed in with throngs of Christians in agreement about major justice issues. We should not be at all surprised that when the, for example, Supreme Court rules that abortion is not protected by the Constitution, those who do not seek the Lord, what do they cry in the streets? Injustice! What? Because their view of justice is so perverted, so debased, that it's unrecognizable as justice. If you as a Christian ever find yourself in a crowd of protesters who boldly profess to hate God and are demanding justice, it's highly unlikely you should agree with them. And Christians all over our country and our world, whole churches gather together to support non-believers seeking justice apart from God. 
and it's folly. Here's, here's, here's a bit of application on this. We won't take all of this time on each of these verses, but I want you to see this. I think this is actually very significant given our time. Do not put your hope for justice in those who do not seek the will of God. Man, I hope that's obvious. Do not put your hope for justice in those who do not seek the will of God. If you are hoping that the next president, the next Congress, the next Supreme Court pick will somehow restore a measure of justice to the broken system, even though they evidently do not seek the will of God, that hope is in vain. In vain. Previous generations of Christians, I think, have failed at this particular point. They thought it was possible for the institutions of our nation to become secularized, to remove God, and still somehow obtain a measure of justice. They said, our institutional leaders, our judges, our sheriffs, our mayors, our congressmen, our school board members, they don't have to be Christians. Yes, they do. Well, separation of church and state, what does that have to do with wisdom? They voted them in anyway, and now look where that's brought us. We bring our own errors to our generation, as they have in the past. But no society, no, no matter how big or small, will ever attain any kind of lasting justice unless they first submit to God. Proverbs 28.5 says, this is a good one. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. How could it be possible, with that being in Scripture, for an atheist judge to possibly be expected to bring about justice? I want to bring this home. I want to bring this home because I, I think that one application point is big picture. Do not put your hope in just, for justice in, the, in those who do not seek the will of God. But let's bring this home because uh, I need to apply it to your everyday. Unless you are planning on running for county judge or district attorney, you may wonder how it applies to you. But this applies in all spheres. So let's think about it this way. Here's an example. Moms, if two of your kids are fighting and you have to intervene, what is influencing how you manage that situation? Think about it. Look at, these, look at the distinction. My will, God's will. Think about that for a second. Okay? I got to jump in. I got to adjudicate. I got to play referee in this. What is driving? Is it your personal desire, your will to have a quiet house? Mom wants it quiet. Or is it submission to God's will that your children learn to be kind to one another. What, what motivates the judgment that has to be made in that moment? What motivates it? This is, this is so hard because our flesh is going to be like, my goodness, I've heard these kids scream all day long. But we must yield to submission to God. What would God want? What does God say is just here? What does God say is right? Husbands, if you were getting a disagreement with your wife, what should be your highest priority? Winning the argument? Honoring the will of God. We can do this in every, every sphere. You must seek God's will first, just like Jesus did, or you will never attain true justice. Now, Jesus is the one making this claim. He claims that his judgment is perfect. It's in accord with God. 
It seeks the will of God first and foremost. That is a weighty claim. And remember, as I said earlier, the weightier the claim, the more proof that is needed to validate it. So is that it? Should the Jews simply believe Jesus? Well, he he said. He said. He follows God. No, he doesn't expect that at all. Look with me at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. True. Jesus just made the claim. His judgment's perfect. If he says it, does that make it true? Now he just needs to back up the claim. Obviously, Jesus is not saying by this line that his testimony is untrustworthy, untrue. If I bear witness, it must be a lie. That's obviously not what he's saying. In fact, if you think that's a funny thought, that's actually what these same Pharisees will say in John 8. They get all upset. They say, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. And Jesus replies in John 8, 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. You don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. So Jesus is not saying that his statements here are false. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if the only evidence they have for his claim is him alone, I alone bear witness about myself. That should not be relied upon. He means that we do not need to rely solely on Jesus' testimony of himself. I I imagine there's a a TV show my wife and I have watched called Parks and Recreation. There's one character named Ron Swanson. He's kind of that masculine, mustached, libertarian, grumpy guy. And he's trying to do a barbecue out in a park one day. And um, he wants to slaughter the pig right there because why not? The park ranger comes up and says, you can't really do that. And he goes, oh, I have a permit. And hands him a piece of paper that says, I can do what I want. (laughs) if all we had was a man's self-certification well i said so if that was all you had that would be altogether insufficient and again the weightier the claim the more proof is needed in the gospels jesus even warns of this exact thing he's not he's not obtuse Regarding this, he tells us of men who will come after him. They, false Christs, liars, false prophets. He even says they will say one thing. Don't test them by their words. Test them by their fruits. That will be the evidence as to whether or not they really are from God. Jesus knows that his claim is a weighty one. It deserves validation. In fact, in an odd little skew here, technically his issue with these Jews is not that they would disbelieve him. That's not technically what he's arguing here. They do not need to rely on his word alone. Instead, Jesus shows several other witnesses who testify on his behalf. Today, we're just going to look at a couple of them before we get to our end, and we'll pick up on this next week. Go to verse 32 with me. He says, there is another who bears witness about me. Not just me, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So real clear, there's somebody other than himself, outside of himself, that testifies, and that testimony is true. Now, real quick, just so you know, if you were to study this, some think it's John the Baptist, because he's going to mention him in the next verse. Some think that it's the Father who will mention the verse after that. And some think it's maybe it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness. It's not incredibly clear as to who exactly he's talking about here, but he will certainly give a list. 
I'm mildly persuaded that when he says this line, he's actually talking about the Father. Because he looks like he's going to quickly go, not John the Baptist, but the Father. He's going to do that. I think that's what's going on. Nevertheless, there are others. And starting with this first witness, there is another outside of himself that bears witness. Verse 33, you sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now this is, I I think this is the second witness. He mentions the Father. He says John the Baptist. And remember, the Pharisees had sent a delegation earlier in John, uh, in John's gospel, to go meet with John the Baptist and find out what this prophet, what this guy out baptizing in the wilderness, what he's saying. They sent guys to go investigate. You sent to John. And what did they hear from him? That he bore witness to the truth. Another is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. His testimony was that one greater than him is coming. His testimony was to Jesus. Now, was that true? Was that a true testimony? Well, look what Jesus says. Uh, he, He says, I say these things to you, you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light because he bore witness to the truth. But the fact that he says, not that the testimony I receive is from man, it doesn't rely even just on John. You guys all know he was trustworthy, but it doesn't even rely just on him. I don't think that was his first witness. I think it's the second. He talks about John here in the past tense. He has borne witness. Uh, He was a burning and shining lamp. Uh, You were willing to rejoice for a a little while in his light. The light's been extinguished. This is very likely after John the Baptist was already put to death by Herod. That's what most commentators think. I'm inclined to agree with that. So the switch to the past tense as opposed to the present makes me think that's why the first verse he was talking about the Father. You study that on your own. But Jesus confirms his testimony, and he says, so that you may be saved. In other other words, you heard what John said. You know what he said. And it was true, true enough that if a person believed what he was saying, that person could be saved. The Pharisees had a very tenuous relationship with John, just as they do with Jesus. In fact, I think it's very much the same problem with John the Baptist as with Jesus. Regarding John, they loved when he punched left, but they hated when he punched right. Yeah, he beat up on all those others, but not on, not on our side. The problem was that just as with Jesus, they could not deny that he was from God. Do you remember that interaction that Jesus had in Matthew where they, said, uh, where they asked, what authority do you have that you use to do all these things and say these things? And Jesus tricks them. He catches them up and says, uh... John, did he come in the authority of God or on his own authority? And they knew. They knew they were in trouble because they, they knew that everybody believed that he was from God. But they, they didn't want to fully support him, so they had to go, oh, we don't know. They couldn't deny that he was from God. John was one of the witnesses of Jesus' authority outside of Jesus. But now Jesus tells them of another witness, a much greater witness. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what's this third witness here now? I I think I, I said that the first one I think is the Father. The second one was John the Baptist, just a man. Don't rely only on that one, but that's a witness. Who's the third witness? The third witness is the works. It's not the Father. It's not the Spirit here. It's the works. My goodness, just look at what's going down. In fact, if you look back in Israel's history, you'll find this. Back, remember when Moses is preparing to go to Pharaoh. God says, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. And Moses heads that way. He goes, well, what, what happens, God, if I show up? And he doesn't believe me. What does the father do then? What does God say to Moses he'll give him to authenticate who he is? He gives him miracles. Throw your staff down. Remember the miracles? Turn into a serpent. You can change your hand from leprous to snow again, to, to, to white as snow again. He gave him miracles to authenticate. And even the ten plagues that came upon Egypt were miracles performed at the hand of Moses to prove that he was telling Pharaoh true things from God. That's the exact thing that's happening with Jesus. The third witness of Jesus, the third evidence being pointed to here is his miracles. Jesus's miracles were so many. They were so clear. They were so public. They could not be denied by his enemies. They couldn't go, that didn't happen. Thousands would go, uh, yeah, it did. We were right there. With the other thousands, we were all there. Can't tell me it didn't happen. I ate that bread. I saw the man blind. Now see, I, saw the, I watched Lazarus come out of the tomb. What are you talking about? Yes, it happened. No one was denying that those things were happening. In fact, we'll see later in John... The Pharisees set out to kill Lazarus because he was walking evidence of the fact that Jesus was from God. And they couldn't have that. They couldn't downplay it. They couldn't try to explain it away. They were incontrovertibly supernatural acts. So what was the only refutation that these leaders could come up with? Well, they must be of Satan. That's all they had. They couldn't deny they happened. They couldn't deny that they were supernatural goodness even pharaoh was like that's just a party trick hey magicians make some snakes from staffs remember remember pharaoh even plays that game ah this is illusion i know the, i know the magic trick game we let's do this the pharisees know uh there's no way around this everyone knows it happened and keeps happening and so it must be of satan it's their only argument now i just want you to hear this their argument in the first century is much different than the modern skeptics argument today Much different. You see, the modern atheist, materialist, the modern skeptic enjoys the luxury of distance. It's been thousands of years. All the witnesses have been dead for a long time. And so the argument of the modern skeptic can simply be, ah, the miracles didn't happen. They simply ignore all of the eyewitness testimonies. Even though not one account survives of a person successfully explaining away Jesus' miracles, they write their own version of history. You see, their unbelief, the unbelief of the modern skeptic, relies on the material impossibility of the miracles. It's impossible. So what do they say? It is not possible 
for a lame man to have his ability to walk restored. It is not possible for a blind man to then see. If someone waves his hands over him or speaks, it is not possible for a man dead, buried in a tomb four days, to get up and walk out. It is impossible. And that's exactly the point. Everyone knew that it was impossible. That is why it's so significant. In fact, no one knew that it was impossible more than all the eyewitnesses. They go, yeah, that's the point. You don't throw your life away and end up facing torture and death for a street magician who performs kind of okay illusions. But you might give your life for undeniably supernatural works. Those works are a witness. The works authenticate Jesus. And no work No miracle Jesus ever did was more significant, was greater than his own resurrection. It was the capstone of all of his miracles. You see, you can find others who have claimed to have performed miracles, but I bet they only claim to have done those miracles while they were alive. How do you explain that away? How great of an illusionist must a guy be to be verified as dead and keep performing tricks? His resurrection was the chief and ultimate evidence, the greatest work. Jesus even tells the disciples at some point, man, greater works, greater than this. You'll see, you'll do. They'll watch this gospel spread around the world. But nothing was greater than him giving his life and raising it up from the dead. That kind of miracle warrants one thing, worship. If you're not a believer today, you need to hear this. The Jesus that we proclaim, that we sing about, that we celebrate, that we sing Christmas carols about, devote an entire uh, month to celebrate and put lights up and uh, candy canes and all of the things that tend to come around Christmas time. The reason that all of this event began, what kicked all this off in the first place, is because our Savior is not dead. Lots of people have been born on this earth that we don't celebrate their birthdays. Christ came into this world as a great demonstration of God's love for lost and broken people that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. You deserve separation from God as a result of your sins. And if you're, a, if you're breathing today, you are a sinner. It's all humankind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're deserving of his just wrath and his judgment. He will make the judgments. He will declare what is just. Christ will do this in the end. You and I deserve that punishment, but Christ took the punishment for our sins upon the cross. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for it so that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And as the final, the coup de grace, the final proof that he is who he said that he was, he raised from the dead after three days with the absolute authentication of who he was. And if you believe in him, not only... Do you have eternal life for yourself in heaven someday, but you will be raised from the dead? The final judgment. 
That's what we want for you, to believe and be saved. Final points of application as we close. Brothers and sisters, follow the evidence. The Bible is evidence. That's what this is. That's what these New Testament accounts are. This is evidence. Now, sometimes Jesus emphasizes the need to simply believe. Faith like a child. Wonderful. But here, he emphasizes the value of having multiple independent lines of witness that support his claims. We have been provided evidence to back up and support the supernatural and weighty claims of of Christ. Christ's reputation does not rely on, does not hang on the testimony of one man. I want to close with asking this question for you, just to get you thinking, my fellow believers here. For whom did Jesus perform his miracles? For whom did Jesus perform his miracles? Every person he healed died. Every person who used to be able to walk around the earth is not walking around the earth anymore. Every blind man that he healed, those eyes aren't working anymore. They're in the ground. So who did he perform the miracles for? Goodness, all the first generation of Christians. Everyone who saw Jesus doing those things, they're all gone. For whom did Jesus perform his miracles? And the answer is the same as we would say to the Old Testament people that were commanded by God to tell their children and their children's children about the mighty works and wonders he did in Egypt. Why? So you will not forget God did a great work. What were those miracles performed for? For the people of God who would follow. What were Jesus' miracles performed for? For us, as much as the people in his own day. Jesus' miracles were done not just for them then, but for us. If you need a verse for this, look at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs, that's the text, that's a context, signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You and I live long after Jesus' earthly ministry. We will not see him make a lame man walk in the same way that the first century believers did. But we do have the record of it. It is written for us. So we have things to rely on as we pursue evidence and proof for the extraordinarily weighty claims of Christ. Jesus' miracles are still a witness for us today. And I would say that in at least two ways. This is my final point. Two ways I think that Jesus' miracles today still serve us. Number one, we are to believe the testimony of Scripture's accounts for miracles. Why do you believe that Jesus is true? Uh, He raised Lazarus. Why do you believe Jesus is true? He raised himself. Why do you believe he's a true prophet? Because he walked on water. How do you know that? I have evidence. Witnesses have recorded this. First, believe the testimony of Scripture. And second, observe the miracles of answered prayer in Jesus' name every day. I think that believers, our Western empirical minds 
need to really embrace this as believers, okay? Especially if you come in a Reformed tradition that really love and highlight texts and evidences and scriptures like this. I think it's so critical for us that we pray for miracles to happen and celebrate when they do. God's performing miracles around us all the time. And people, just like way back then, are trying to find ways to explain it away. Ah, it's, it's a, it must be a trick. In fact, they tried to pay off the, the, the first uh, the, uh, soldiers, right, that were surrounding Jesus' tomb. Hey, go lie and say that, uh, you know, you fell asleep, and that's what happened, and that's how his body's gone, right? They always tried to find ways to explain this. Oh, it must be a demon. Everyone's trying to find a way to explain that. Brothers and sisters, pray for miracles to happen and observe when God answers those prayers. I want to go ahead and close in prayer this morning. And my prayer that I'm going to be offering up is a specific request to the Lord. Lord, please show us from your word. Help us to, if there's been a block in our mind from seeing this as proofs, evidences, eyewitness testimonies that, that authenticate who Christ is, I want for you to be able to experience the miracles afresh and anew and read about these things and see just how marvelous God's work is on display in certifying his son, what we read in his word. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray for a miracle. I pray for the miracle of continued belief, growing trust in you and your word. God, I pray that we would be a people marked by it, that we would not care of the laughter of the materialists around us who have no basis for their understanding of any truth claims. And yet, Father, we get to hold your word and we get to hold fast to it. Lord, it is by your will that it will be the proclamation of your word that would bring about salvation in the hearts of many. The faith comes through hearing and through hearing of the word of Christ. God, I pray that we would be so trusting in this book, so knit to it, so in love with the evidences and the testimonies here that not only would we see those as things that are helpful for our life and encouragements for hard times, but we'd see them as they actually are. Written records of truth, things that happen in history that are for us that we may believe. Help us to believe, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' good name, amen.